Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Arthur Millick is with us today. He joined us last year to discuss free speech threats, and now he's here to describe a new initiative of which he is the director. Welcome, Arthur. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, so what, uh, what the heck is the Center for the American Way of Life? It sounds like the 1955. <laughs> I, I, I mean that as a compliment. Well, in, in a way, it is trying to revive and restore a right who understands its purpose very clearly as, on the one hand, doing as much to roll back the influences of the left in all of America's main institutions, which they have captured and which they're using to turn the country into a tyranny. But on the other hand, just as importantly, the goal is to make the right more honest and more useful to the country in a way that it is regrettably currently not. Just to give you one example on that, even though you and your listeners already know that, you know, the right spent the last 30 years trying to develop loyalties to America's mega corporations, begging them, giving them everything they wanted. And in exchange, all of those corporations went woke. <laughs> in other words, the failure of the establishment right in grasping that we live in a political regime where politics and power politics is at play rather than a kind of luxury vessel sailing on a smooth o ocean, it is all coming home right now. And there must be some kind of institutional check towards the right, so as to actually make it fight on the grounds that are important to see the threats that actually exist to the nation and that are undermining it. Just to give you one more simple example, it's really astonishing when you look at the past four years and look at what the establishment right has done on big tech. The answer is nothing. They protected big tech. And many of us made the same argument relentlessly, like Google controls 90% of the world's searches, which is to say they are the portal into the internet. And whether they like it or not, the internet has become the public square with the decline in print media, with the decline in cable news, which will keep going more and more. And so one corporation that has publicly stated what its moral principles are, which in my view are against Republican self-government, 
that corporation has been protected relentlessly. Everything has been done so as to put you know, a stick in the spokes of that bicycle to do something about it. As if protecting the freedom of speech, as if protecting the freedom of the mind is really somehow you know, against conservatism. Nobody in their right mind, if it was 1950, and uh, the New York Times purchased up 90% of America's newspapers and used that in order to impose some kind of moral doctrine and try to influence the outcome of elections. Nobody would say, yeah, well, that's what free markets look like. That's perfectly normal. So there must be new thinking on the right and, more importantly, a revival of what the right is fighting for, which has to be, in America, political liberty. And a kind of viable laying out of all of the policies that America needs today, not as if America is 1980. Arthur, why is it that Republicans took so long to realize that corporate America is not the friend of conservatism? Well, I think there are a few reasons for it. Look, the truth is they cannot be fully blamed because we are a commercial republic. And what that means is that the measure of our happiness, I don't think it's a fully accurate or complete measure, but it's true that a partial measure of our happiness as a nation and our comity inside is prosperity. The trouble is that the right selected corporations as the only driver of prosperity and naively thought, as I said before, that, well, if they have it in whatever way they want, by which I mean, give them endless open immigration, give them all of the tax cuts that they would like, let them go explore throughout the world and open up new markets for themselves, even if in the process we are enriching our adversaries and creating an adversary in China, all of that is okay in principle because, look, prosperity is the only unifying principle of the country. That's a caricature, but that's approximately what the thinking was. And as I said before, they, they viewed America as a kind of vacation from history, that there cannot be new powers that come to rise, either domestically in the form of oligarchs that, as I said before, are, are restricting the freedom of speech and freedom of thought, or that you can enrich adversaries that won't be just friendly to you because now they're wealthy. Maybe you remember, Mark, in the 90s and early aughts, all of these banks and academics came together and they came up with this concept called the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And the, the underwriting theory was, well, if they just become wealthy, then they'll become exactly like us. Yeah. Which is to say, we should just send them all of our products and have these some absurd trade agreements for them, because that's how you get rid of enemies in the world. And this turned out to be, on the one side, just hopeful, childish, naive thinking, but on the other side, a kind of hustle for the oligarchic class, yeah. who wanted the national security world to go away so that they could open new markets for themselves, no matter what the consequences to the nation would be. So it was partly error, partly naivety. You have an article in at the website American Mind that I want to point our readers to. It is entitled, A New Conservatism Must Emerge. You say there, quote, at the beginning, America is currently engaged in a regime-level struggle that will preserve or destroy the purpose that has defined it. Uh, let me ask you about the term regime-level. What do you mean by regime-level here? Look, this word comes from, regime comes from Aristotle, um, but you don't need Aristotle's authority to, to understand it. What it actually means is 
the moral worldview of the ruling elites. And they end up, for Aristotle, determining the character of the nation, the character of the laws, the organization of the country, and its purpose. And we very rarely reflect on, well, what exactly is the purpose of this country? The founders have an answer, which is the safeguarding of our rights. That is its main purpose. And they say the pursuit of happiness, which is to say, not a guarantee of happiness, not a promise, but allowing you to find it. And if you do, wonderful. And if you don't, then, well, what, what can one do? That's the nature of life. And those rights are secured not just by a constitution, of course, but by the equal rule of laws. That is the thing, that's such a boring thing in a certain way, but at the same time, I think it's actually the most important thing that conservatives should be thinking about right now, because it's precisely the equal rule of laws that on the one side give Americans an understanding of genuine equality such that you can look at fellow citizens and recognize that you have the same amount of rights as I do. And there's a kind of common good among us. But what we have today is not a country of the equal rule of law. It's a, it's a bizarre mixture of the following two components. On the one side, you have the highest in our society and the lowest in our society for whom the equal operation of laws does not work. It does not apply to them. So just to give you an example, we hear all the time, and Trump made hay of this, uh, how is it that these top people who are either his political opponents or inside of his own administration who have committed crimes like leaking classified information or spreading rumors that were illegal or taking money, perhaps, as, as Hillary Clinton has been accused, from, from, from our adversaries, they are never brought to justice. So the elites are immune. Hunter Biden. Yeah, Hunter Biden, that's right. But in addition to the elites being immune from the rule of laws, so too are, is the substratum of society. So just as an example, none of these Antifa gangsters are going to be brought to justice. None of the BLM burners of America's cities this summer are going to be brought to justice. None of them. So what ends up happening is that actually the laws are only applied to the middle, to America's middle class who are law-abiding. That's one element of how the rule of law is out of whack in America. The other is we have an entire system that comes from civil rights legislation that basically says that uh, people who are marginalized and those groups are expanding more and more actually have considerably more rights than the so-called oppressor group in America. And the left is not shy about defining who the oppressor is. These are their words. It's basically white Americans. So the law is, as I said before, not enforced in these two ways in America. And without a coming back to what America uh, once was or ought to have been, which is the equal application of the laws for everybody, this country is headed towards dark days, regrettably, because everybody sees the functioning of these things. Everybody sees how the laws are misapplied, how people get away with it, how certain laws and policies apply only to some groups. And uh, yeah, the circumstance may get uglier, regrettably. Is the term identity politics accurate here? Is, is, that, is that a nice umbrella term for this unequal application of, of laws and rights? 
It's an interesting question. Um, the answer is yes and no. I mean, in, in a certain way, identity politics is really a word that's used by the right. Uh, the left doesn't talk about identity politics. On the other hand, it's also a misnomer because when you hear that term, you think, well, so it's about the politics of identity and therefore everybody gets an identity. But that's actually not at all the case. The underlying thesis of this worldview, if I can summarize it very quickly, is basically that um, all of history is defined by the oppression of so-called marginalized groups, by so-called oppressor groups. And those marginalized groups have been denied not just rights, uh, not just property or voting, but their identity itself. And therefore, their goal now is to find that identity, create that identity, almost ex nihilo. But that's not enough, because what also must be done is to take away the institutions, the self-respect, the freedoms of the oppressor group, who, as I said before, they're not shy about identifying as white Americans. And so it's a fundamental conflict. Our identity has been taken, and now we must take away yours because your identity somehow contains the seeds of evil. And I say that word uh, not by mistake, because I do think that this is fundamentally a religious revolution. It really bothers me when conservatives say, well, the left is communist or Marxist. That's not true. It also bothers me a lot when conservatives say, well, what we need right now in America is a religious revival. <laughs> We've got one. We got one. That's exactly right. Because the goal of identity politics is fundamentally a religious one. The goal is the purgation of evil, the purgation of those identities that have caused all of these historical evils so, that, so as to purify the world. And only once that purgation has taken place can there be some kind of blossoming of all of the identities which in the past have been taken away or undermined or whatever you want to call it. You know, Arthur, all of us, this sounds like it would be very bad for business. Why is woke capital, woke is a woke corporation uh, just looking at this as a sort of a cost of doing business? Or do they think that this, this actually can work in, in a free enterprise system? It's a very interesting question because, look, there's a lot of speculation on this and, it's, and the answer is a bit mysterious. My view is that America's Fortune 500s deeply fear Bernie Sanders. They do not fear BLM. Bernie Sanders wants to take things that they have away and close them down potentially or make it such that they will effectively have to close down. That's not what BLM is after, not at all. BLM ends up being more or less happy to be bought off. Uh, they like the shakedown. They know that what they want is not to shutter those businesses because they actually deeply need those businesses. Those businesses will voluntarily fork over billions of dollars so as to not be called out as, you know, all of the terms we've come to know, the bad terms, they will make way to hire thousands and thousands of people inside of them so as to enforce the kind of identity politics morality. So 
I don't know if it's good or bad for business in the long run, but I do know that they can actually live with it. Now, the next question would be, well, why are some of these corporate titans okay with it? I mean, do they believe or not? And here you have to get speculative, and I, I suspect that you can basically divide them into three categories. The believers that agree with this, and I think you especially see this in the tech world. I think that the, that the folks at the head of Google do believe in the identity politics revolution. And yeah, maybe they think it's rough around the edges, maybe they think it's going too far, but they agree. And so they're okay with it. And they're so wealthy, by the way, that you know, it, it doesn't cost them very much. The second category are those that are scared. And you know, when average people kind of look at a CEO in a private jet and you know, making, I don't know, $50 million a year, they're really impressed and they think that this person is somehow like really strong and uh, independent. But the truth is, all of these people live in deep fear that the New York Times is gonna write a piece on them that says that they're racist. So they're terrified. And what they need from conservatives is an off-ramp, an off-ramp to resist this. And then there's a third category. Uh, and I think that this is the most interesting and the most dangerous. Um, I think that there's a third category. You especially see them, uh, anyways, it's my opinion, you especially see them in the kind of financialized economy, the, the, the financialized sector where I think that they don't care if the identity politics revolution is true or not. But what they think is that it's going to actually win and that the left is going to conquer the country once and for all. And they want to end up being on the right side of it. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. Now, you attribute the rise of this woke left, it's, it's the spread of its power in good part, to, quote, the weakness of the opposition. Whom do you mean? I guess I mean two types here. Let's say the kind of moderate left that had existed for, I don't know, in the 90s and early aughts, that, I'll give you a, a nice example, and maybe your, your listeners uh, know this person, this famous academic named Charles Taylor, uh, ostensibly a Catholic, I think, who wrote about, flatteringly, wrote about identity politics. You know, everybody deserves to find their deep, authentic selves and become that deep, authentic self. And that's what human happiness is. And for absolutely irresponsible reasons, he thinks that that is not going to turn into identity politics. <laughs> These were the dreamy days of the 90s when things looked so innocent and that identity politics didn't look like, well, I want to uh, bring you grievous harm because you've taken away from me the most sacred thing and your identity is the oppressor identity, and that needs to be once and for all silenced. So 
partly the opposition on the left. They kind of created the new left unwittingly and thought that for, as I said, inexplicable magical thinking reasons that it would be moderate. But in addition, it's also the right. I mean, how much time and energy and money has been spent in the last 10 years on the right on talking about occupational licensing reform? I just, what I mean by that is just irrelevant issues while always avoiding a square-faced confrontation and while also avoiding uh, doing anything serious and strong about the institutions that the left has captured. So this is a question that you and I have talked about for a long time, but universities. I mean, the, the right has been trying everything in the small ball way that it likes to do to do something about the academy, inviting people, you know, outside speakers, talking about free speech, which is in a way a good issue, but in a way a sideshow because it's not the real issue, rather than saying, okay, well, these universities have been captured. What they're doing right now is defrauding taxpayers and turning decent children into, their, into the enemies of their parents and into the enemies of this nation. Well, we should just cut their financing. Arthur, did you see this week, as we're recording this, Senator John Cornyn has co-sponsored a civics education bill with Senator Chris Coons that will send $150 million to the ed schools in higher education. Probably the most anti-conservative part of the college campus. That's where the money's going to go. Unbelievable! That's right. And this is, this is why, let's put it this way, the, the way that the right is currently organized, it is simply not up to the task of fighting the left. It is simply not because of things like this. The left is very intelligent and patient and knows street theater and knows power politics very well. And it has the federal government to self-fund itself. And while it was doing that for the past 30 years, a lot of the right was talking about, you know, occupational licensing reforms and things of that lowball nature. You can turn off the spigot. It can be done. And you can turn off the spigot so that a large, sizable chunk of these places goes out of business. And I welcome that. I think that that would be a good thing. You, you, you have to be ready for the fight, though. And you say... Uh, in your article, that the right is, in, or at least the establishment right, is in a condition of, quote, spiritual enervation. What do you mean by that? I mean, they don't know what they're fighting for. They think they're fighting for the GDP, but what they end up actually fighting for are, um, is the status quo of the last 10 years. And so it moves on every decade. Uh, they end up becoming the left 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and they're enervated because, as I said before, they, they don't have a purpose. They don't see that they're fighting for a nation, not just an idea, not just an abstraction, but people that live here who have lives and who need to be benefited. And they're also fighting for political liberty, which is the purpose of this country. And they're always willing to compromise. The left makes bold, enormous proposals. They only get 20% of, of, of what they wanted, but they're satisfied. And the right always, almost always walks away a loser 
and says, well, we'll get them next time. Um, I would, I would uh, recommend that your listeners watch this kind of masterpiece interview between Tucker Carlson and Mike Braun, Senator Mike Braun from Indiana from, oh, maybe a year ago. And Mike Braun just, he said the thing you're not supposed to say out loud. And it was just so perfect. Tucker said, why are you making these, this pro-BLM legislation? And Mike Braun said, well, it's the only way we can sit at the table. In other words, the left, he is so terrified of the left. He genuinely believed that the left controls the moral high ground. But the best that you can do as a party is compromise just so they will listen to you. <laughs> uh, the left the left doesn't waste time with, uh, with, with that outlook. And th- this gets actually a final point here. One of the things you call for is sort of a mental, emotional change. More, quote, tough, toughness. We need toughness. Why don't we have more toughness on the right? Here's one... Uh, answer, which is not fully true, but there's something to it, is that the right spent the last 30 years investing tens of millions of dollars to train young people, to train mid-career people, to train members of Congress, so that in 30 seconds, they can defend free markets. Just rattle it off. And look, that was fine, and that was in a way a successful thing that they did. They have not been trained in speaking about the key words, the key concepts that the left stands for. But they can be. I'll give you one example. The, uh, you know, I'm very interested in working with and have been working with uh, state legislatures. And they all see that something's wrong with universities, but they cannot wrap their mind around what the word diversity means. Partly because they're scared, partly because they haven't been trained. And the, the definition of diversity is as few of the oppressor group as possible and hopefully zero. So if you go into an inner city, that's a very diverse place. And so they can be, there is some hope that they can be shown what these abstract concepts mean. And you can build a coalition because a lot of people are deeply frustrated and deeply alarmed by what's happening in the nation. So I don't think actually the situation is, is, is hopeless. But what it does mean is that we have to recapture the moral high ground. Uh, and I'll give you one easy example. I mean, everything that Trump proposed to do on immigration was, you know, actually very moderate. You know, he wanted to... It really was. Was it that much different from, from you know, the, the Bernie Sanders outlook? That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. He just wanted to seal the border and deport, you know, felons, illegal felons. I mean, that's like a very basic thing that any civilized country would do. But what conservatives were not capable of during that period was actually defending the core of what they ought to be defending, which is the nation. Yeah. They all always live within the moral horizons of the left. It's always set for them. And so just on the issue of immigration, it's very easy to say that this country doesn't belong to the world. It belongs to Americans. And if we're a free people, then we choose who comes in and who doesn't. If we choose that zero comes in, that is perfectly legitimate to do. This country belongs to no one but its citizens. And to develop this kind of way of speaking, this kind of clear-mindedness is something that I think 
there's there's actually promise in in Americans because they are being pushed. You want to you want to tell them? Did you see what happened with the Hispanic vote for Donald Trump last November? He got a big bump. That's exactly right. Yeah. But they 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 won't learn lesson. They 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 they're still scared. They run. I mean, I see Republican leaders. They run from the racism issue, like like frightened rabbits. It's it's remarkable how intimidated uh, our own leaders are on this issue. Yes, but there is there are signs of hope. There's a class of uh, new people who will replace that old generation, who are more who have learned the lesson from Trump, and who are prepared to speak. Uh, in a more forthright way. And, and, and I would like them to say things like, what the left actually wants of America is a racial caste system. And that is not what this country is about. And if you want that, this is no longer America. And I want the left to admit that so that the right, so not even just the right, decent citizens just accept that the country that they live in is really for the purpose of open borders and a racial caste system. Forcing the left into these things requires a kind of internal energy, an internal righteousness. And that can only happen when you think that you're actually fighting for something and not just the GDP. Arthur, your Center for the American Way of Life, this, this is your job in the coming years. You, you, you've got to train people. You've got to give them the confidence. You've got to give them the knowledge, the ideas, and the arguments that will give them confidence to stand up and stay firm. That, that's your job, pal. I know. Well, I'm just grateful to the Claremont Institute who, you know, trusts me so much uh, so as to give me this job uh, and, and let me just kind of sputter out and do it. The article for people who want to know more is A New Conservatism Must Emerge. It was in the American Mind uh, in, in mid-February. So go ahead and look that up. Arthur Millick, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.